Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Fabio Rojas, professor of sociology at Indiana University Bloomington and author of Theory for the Working Sociologist. Fabio introduces his approach to teaching sociological theory, discusses the four theoretical moves made within the discipline, and argues against the importance of having students engage in lengthy readings of original text and the disciplinary tendency to turn our favorite theorists into superheroes. Thanks for joining us today, Fabio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So we're here today to talk about your book, Theory for the Working Sociologist. And I'm wondering before we get into the actual argument, if we just spend a little time making sense of the title, because I think there's actually a lot in the title when we break it down. So the first thing I'm wondering, what do you mean by theory? Right. So when I talk about theory in the book, I mean general ideas that are applicable to many cases that allow sociologists to explain them. And in the book, what I say, uh, I use the example of biology. I say, when you look for biological theory, you don't want just a theory of butterflies or a theory of tigers. You want some theory that covers all kinds of living creatures. You know, in the same way for physics, you have a theory for cars, and you have a theory for trains, but that really should be the same theory at some level, right? So some sort of general explanation that covers a lot of cases that you care about that allows you to kind of really analytically reason about them. So that's how I approach theory in the book. And kind of one of the implicit and often explicit arguments of the book is that that's a very good way to think about theory and how to teach it in contrast with other approaches of theory, which focus on, say, intellectual history or, uh, you know, what a particular person thought about a certain issue. Okay, so before we even get into the second part of the title, maybe let's go a little bit further with that because you're bringing up some of the ways that you've seen theory taught you're specifically avoiding building it off the idea of these are the great ideas. It's not, you know, this was an important idea from 1900, so now you need to learn it. It's rather, this is a useful idea for you at this present moment. Is that fair? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, this may be a good moment to think about the different ways that people teach theory. One is what you referred to, which you might call like the great ideas or the great books approach. Like these were the books that were famous at certain periods of time, therefore we should learn about them. Another way to teach theory is to focus it on specific people, like to say, this is Weber's theory or Durkheim's theory, Du Bois's theory. And my argument is that each of those approaches to understanding theory has value, but it's not really what most undergraduates or even most graduate students should learn. It's like going into a medical school and asking, can you please teach me to save somebody's life? And you say, well, this is the way we did it in 1850. Right? Yeah, yeah. And you may say, well, that's interesting. It's enriching. But it doesn't help me save your life today. Yeah, even if it was the most wonderful, innovative breakthrough in 1932 about, you know, now we understand something new about the heart, we've still updated those ideas since then. Right, and we can even teach them better. You know, like even if we still use the same theory from 1930, the textbook in 2020 is probably better written than the textbook in 1920. So there's all this updating of ideas, new approaches, and even just, you know, presentation materials. Like, you don't have to go back to 1920 to, uh, so for example, you know, we knew about the circulation of blood in the body for centuries, for like 200 years or something, but you get a nice modern treatment of it in a textbook. You don't have to go back to the original, you know, Renaissance era physiology book to read how the blood circulates in the heart. And it doesn't mean that doctors shouldn't know that stuff, but it's kind of an interesting historical thing that's enriching and very informative, but it's not really at the core of what any academic field of inquiry is about. It's really about, you are here today, what are the best ideas that really help you make progress? 
Now, one of the other ways that theory is commonly taught is to arrange the book or arrange the syllabus by topics that you're going to cover, right? So here's a theory is related to X, here's a theory is related to Y, maybe it's deviance, maybe it's now focused on community, whatever topics that we want to explore. Now, you're, you're not going that direction. Well, that doesn't summarize what I'm doing. And, you know, this gets back to the example of biologists, right? Like, there are theories of tigers and theories of butterflies, but they're really the same theory underneath at some level, right? And you could read a book that says, well, this is my explanation for why tigers have stripes, but it's not a completely different theory than the uh, theory that tells you about whales. And so in biology, when you learn theory, you learn things that really cover different cases. And also I address this in the book a little bit where I say that if you develop a theory or talk about theories that are attached to specific topics, then what you get is kind of like a disorganized network of like sub theories or middle range theories. And this is what Robert Merton actually proposed in uh, the 1950s and 60s. He said that general theory was just too vague, too hard, too difficult. So instead we should do theories of deviance. Like we should figure that out first. And then maybe at some point later, we'll come up with the, with the grandmaster theory that explains it all. And in the book, I argue, I say, you know, I can understand why somebody would do that. Like, you know, coming up with a theory of why, say, Trump won in 2016 is probably a little bit easier than why voters vote the way they do in general. But ultimately, you don't want to disorganize, mangle, or pile of facts. Uh, what you want is some sort of overview or framework that allows you to talk about new cases in a pretty organized and analytically clear way. And I think the broader version of theory as a, as a way of generating mechanisms or explanations uh, gets you closer to that than approaching theory as the application or study of particular topics. Which makes sense also in that theory is something you can take between thinking about what students do. You can take these ideas between all those other courses because you're going to be taking majority of courses you take in sociology are topics courses. And so theory and methods should be these things where you learn ideas that travel and bring them all together. Right. And actually, you know, one reason that I teach theory the way that I do is I used to teach it the other way. I used to teach it as the great man, like here's Marx and Durkheim and that sort of thing. And what I discovered was teaching it this way scares students, maybe not the most elite students at the most selective schools, but at least at most schools, like big public schools and, you know, the less competitive private schools. You know, that scares most students. They tend to delay theory until the very end. Because what the reason they signed up for sociology is they want to understand like racism or they want to understand why their parents got a divorce or why somebody they know lost their job, right? Like that's what they really want to do. So what they say is, okay, there's this course where they're going to make me read 300 pages of Karl Marx. I'm going to avoid that until the very end. Instead, what it should be is that we should dispense with that, boil down to the main points of sociology and say, okay, well, here's some basic ideas. And then you will bring them to your other courses after you take the theory methods course. You know, in the same way that in a physical science class or biological science class, you would say, here's the ways we do it. And then apply that to, say, astronomy or cell biology or whatever. And this isn't even an argument about the sciences. Most of the other humanities also work on this model as well. So, for example, if you take a major in philosophy, there are topics classes and you can get away with taking the topics classes without taking a more fundamental class. But at least in most philosophy majors, there's at least a course that says, OK, these are the ground rules for philosophy. Right. Like this is an ad hominem of why you shouldn't make it. This is a syllogism. This is begging the question. Like this is not the way logical people argue. And that usually comes early in the curriculum. And then you go back to the classics and you say, oh, OK, given how we've thought about these issues, we can then read Kant or Hume or whatever. 
Yeah, logic is usually the 100-level course in most philosophy curriculum. So this is an argument that I've both heard, and I'm probably guilty of making at one point. And you hear something like, similar to math, uh, students have to take calculus, even if they'll never use calculus in their real life, uh, or as they want, after they graduate, it teaches them to think at this higher level. And once you can understand calculus, a very complex argument, then you have those skills that build something in your brain, and you'll be able to build arguments yourself at a simpler level. And then people use it to say, all right, well, you have to work your way through the dense text of Weber, because once a student can understand that complexity of argument and that complexity of writing, they're building something. Then, they, then they'll be able to take that and understand simpler ideas. Is there any value in that in your mind? Or is that one of those stories we just repeat over and over to justify doing things the way they've always been done? Yeah, my opinion is that that is false. You know, that way of thinking is misleading. And I'm like you for almost my entire adult life. I believe that. I really did believe that by learning harder things or more complex things that kind of built your mental muscles. It's not a crazy idea, but it turns out in psychology, people have actually tested this idea. And in psychology, the hypothesis that, you know, if you're really good at learning something A, you can bring it over. It'll help you learn subject B, like you transfer from A to B. And that's called transfer learning. So the idea is like, if you're good at calculus, that help you do other stuff. And people have been testing this in psychology for literally about a hundred years. And I'm not exaggerating, like literally for about 80 or 90 years, psychologists have been testing transfer learning. They take people and they teach them one subject and they see if it improves their learning in another subject. And in almost in every study, in study after study, the answer is no. People, transfer learning really just does not help. You know, so basically, if you take somebody and drag them through 300 pages of Max Weber, they really learn Max Weber very well. But it doesn't help them understand an article in the American Journal of Sociology, except for the part that talks about one specific argument about Max Weber, mm -hmm. right? Instead, when you pick up a typical journal article or a typical monograph in sociology, they'll say things like, okay, you know, I spent two years doing field research. I'm an ethnographer, and this is why I learned about this school or this corporation that I was embedded in. And then the way to analyze that is not to read Weber, because Weber never talked about that. And in fact, Weber was a historical sociologist. He didn't really use other kinds of data. Um, he didn't have uh, much of a conception of causal mechanism. He doesn't have all the stuff that we have today. And of course, if the article or book uses statistical evidence, then almost nothing you learn in a typical social theory course will help you, right? <laughs> Except for the one sentence in the article that says, by the way, Marx says something like this in 1848. And so this whole idea that reading difficult things is uh, challenging and helpful, that's a very reasonable hypothesis. But when people have actually tested it in educational psychology, the answer is just not true. And once you absorb that lesson that, you know, toughening you up is not as good as just directly teaching you something, right? <laughs> so, you know, so like right now in the United States, we're very concerned about like systemic racism and how to make a more just and fair society. I would rather just take people and say, okay, well, these are the mechanisms that sociologists believe lead to racial inequality. I'll just directly explain them to you, explain the general principle, kind of what's the, the logical template for generating these kinds of explanations, and then we can test them. That's probably better than making people read like 300 pages of Du Bois. Mm -hmm. And I've read 300 pages of Du Bois. I think Du Bois is a great sociologist, but still it's not as effective as a teaching tool as just directly telling them, okay, you have people who are monoracialists. They just want to exclude all people from other groups. And this is what they do. Or there's implicit racism and this is how it works. Let me just tell you. And these are all examples of more general theory of in-groups and out-groups. And just to tell people up front, and then to say, okay, 
And then you save yourself the extraordinarily painful task of dragging people through texts. Now, I do still drag people through texts, but I'll, I'll give them like short excerpts. Mm-hmm. And when I teach social theory, I usually assign anthologies or books that have short excerpts. And that's a way more effective way of teaching than saying, okay, let's just go through all of Durkheim's suicide, mm-hmm. right? Or elementary forms of religious life, which by the way, I think is a wonderful text. But just for the average person walking in my class and the average person signing up for the social major, it might as well be Greek. And it's not going to be legible to them. And even if I you know, made them crawl through it for 16 weeks, most of them are going to very quickly forget it. So instead, just say, look, these are the mechanisms that in general people who think about social solidarity worry about. And that's what Durkheim is really talking about. He's talking about social solidarity. It's a tradition that we still think about today. Here are kind of modern people and old people who think about it. And then we can say, you know, how do you know that theory is true or false? Like we can make sure that you understand it properly and that you uh, recognize it in text when you see it. And that's probably way better than, okay, week four, we're now getting to page 28 of Durkheim, right? (laughs) Yeah, so I'm kind of taking a little bit of the horror movie approach to the podcast where we keep referring to this thing that you do, your approach to theory, but we're doing everything else and building the tension leading up to the reveal of what you actually do. Um, and if you don't mind, I want to keep that tension building because I'm, I'm so fascinated by the critique that you offer of other approaches. And so I'm wondering, you do assign these excerpts, so they do encounter the original text of theorists. How short are they? And then I guess the, the follow-up would be, why even assign even a sentence of Durkheim, rather than just providing summaries? What's the value of the undergraduate ever encountering that original writing? Yeah, and so there is a little bit of value. So remember that course is not a uh, pure bundle of goods, right? Like, you know, most courses do not do just one thing through all 16 weeks. They tend to mix and match a little bit. So for example, even in a math class, they may say, okay, well, this is going to be all analytics and proofs. But, you know, we're going to do a little bit of a computer simulation here, Mm -hmm. right? Or we'll do like, you you mix it up a little bit. And so the way that my book is written, and, uh, you know, we'll we'll get to that in a minute, is to say, now that I taught you these big ideas, I can now then explain how all these other texts that you'll encounter in your other courses are all connected. Mm -hmm. So um, there is some value, but theoretically, um, I could actually dispense with them. Like the book is so self-contained that uh, you could actually completely dispense with additional readings. And theoretically, you could do a course like that. But then also there's an issue of professional socialization, which is that when people go to other social departments, so I'll get maybe 60 or 70 students a year in social theory, and maybe three or four of them will go to a graduate program. And by the way, that statement right there is exactly the reason you should teach theory in the way that I recommend, that very few of the people in your class unless you're at an Ivy League school, almost everybody in that class is going to be a regular human being after graduation, right? (laughs) So if you're going to get them for 16 weeks, don't drag them through 300 pages of Weber. Actually teach them something that will help enlighten what they see upon graduation. But still, for those three or four or five students who may go to MA programs or a couple that get a PhD in sociology, yeah, they should know. They should be exposed to some of this stuff, even though they don't have to really read it and it doesn't add that much value beyond a very good summary. So I've had students go to very competitive programs and say, Fabio, thank you for teaching it this way. Just clarified everything. And then the only extra effort I had to do was to go through those 300 pages of Weber. And then also there's a little bit of humility. Maybe my summary gets things wrong. Right. So I can say, well, here's my summary. This is what I think is the underlying point. If you read it, maybe you'll get a different point from it. Or maybe uh, the text itself 
is complex and contains more than one idea. And so when you read it, you see, okay, maybe the way Fabio summarized it does hit this point, and he used that text to illustrate a certain uh, argument. But when I read it, I realize there's more to the text than that. So you could dispense with it completely, but there is some value. It's just not what I think the primary value is. So you, you started to answer this already, but I do want to make sure we go back and conclude this part. We talked about what you mean by theory. What do you mean by the working sociologist? Because the book is very explicitly oriented towards whatever that group is. So who is the working sociologist? Right. So the book's title operates on two levels. So it's an in-joke for me, and I'll tell you the in-joke. There's a book that you can uh, Google. It's called Category Theory for the Working Mathematician. And a very long time ago, I used to be a student of mathematics before I became a sociologist. And I discovered that there was this branch of mathematics called category theory that was hyper abstract. It was kind of cool, but most mathematicians actually avoided it because they're like, this is so incredibly abstract. It's not going to help me say program a computer or, you know, solve a differential equation. Like what's the point of this hyper ultra abstract approach to mathematics? So a professor at the University of Chicago named Saunders McLean wrote a book called Category Theory for the Working Mathematician. Yeah. So saying this branch of mathematics is actually useful to people who solve everyday scientific problems. Yeah. And, you know, he was actually kind of right. You know, like it's still a relatively abstract branch of math, but it does have applications and it does actually work for people. So, you know what Picasso said? He said, you know, good people mimic and great people steal. Yeah. So... <laughs> I want to be a great person, so I just stole the title directly. <laughs> and I just said, you know, it's called Theory for the Working Sociologist. Yeah. And the idea is that, like, there is a group of people in sociology who are specialists in a genre of writing called theory, which is overly abstract, extremely historical, often very inaccessible to anybody but specialists. And uh, they often teach the social theory courses in most departments. And they are the ones who say, you don't really understand theory until you've read 400 pages of Weber and then 500 pages of Parsons and then all the refutations of Parsons that came after that. Like, you don't understand sociology until you spent two years reading all those arguments and counterarguments. So I will say that's a genre. That is a type of research. It is certainly interesting, but it's not what the average everyday working sociologist does. Like a person wakes up and says, why did divorce rates go up in the 1970s? You know, I also feel like I should do a little translation since you've been in the Midwest for a while and I spent time in the Midwest. When you say something is interesting, it's not always a compliment. Right. Exactly. You know, and you'll see this in actual sociology departments. You're a teacher and you'll ask somebody like, what do you think of social theory? And if they're like a demographer or something, they'll just say, yeah, I took a course in it and thank God I'm done with it. Or they'll say a very polite thing like, oh, I got something out of it. It was nice. And then they never think about it again. And so basically, there is a thing called social theory, and the tendency for a very long period of time was to make it this kind of very inaccessible and difficult branch of sociology. And this is like theory for the rest of us, right? Like if you actually have to go to work, if you're in the Census Bureau, or you're you know, a consultant or a teacher in a sociology department, and you're writing reports, doing real analysis of social behavior – this book will be way more relevant for you than the book that goes line by line and re-explains or explains what Max Weber did. And so the working sociologist does not mean the sociology professor who is a working sociologist, but rather people who take sociology into the world and use it in, at work. Yeah. Okay. Does it literally mean like you have a job that says sociologist over the door? Yeah, because that would be an academic. <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, you know, but the point is like somebody who does this for real rather than to write articles of, of very limited interest for other social theory specialists. 
Okay, so I think we've delayed enough. Let's get into how you actually teach theory. So you've told us a lot about what you don't do, and you've kind of hinted at what you do and given a few examples. But in the book, you specifically say, here's how I teach it. And you also provide us with an understanding of these four different types of theoretical moves. So could you explain your approach? Right. So here's the approach. Basically, I say, okay, if you had to boil down the main arguments of sociology, like boil them down, what would you get? And of course, you know, the disclaimer is that this is not a perfect summary. You're going to omit something, but generally you're going to get four flavors of sociology. You're going to get arguments about inequality, why one group has higher status than another and how they defend that status. Number two, you get arguments about choices and resources. You're going to get arguments about social construction or how people create their social worlds through convention or mutual belief. And you're going to get arguments about the interplay of values and what people think is legitimate or good and the social structures and organizations and institutions they create. And the way I present social theory or teach is say, okay, now that you've boiled it down these four different cookbooks or recipe books, you can go through the classics and you can find modern people who talk about these things in different ways, right? And then for the theory heads, the people who work, who really focus a lot on the logical scientific explanation, What I say is that each of these cookbooks or recipes or toolboxes generates mechanisms, explanations of how you get from A to B, right? How do you get from A to B? So for example, in the study of inequality, one of the interesting things is the shift from theories of overt exclusion, where if you're an African-American person, you might be driving through a town and people will say, you know, you're not welcome here. People just overtly say that. But now there's theories of systemic racism that say, okay, well, There are policies that have disproportionate effects on African-Americans or people have implicit beliefs about African-Americans that aren't articulated well, but still affects their actions. And then you're like, oh, I see the connection between these different types of theories now. So in a nutshell, that's the way I teach. I say there are four general classes or toolboxes that people have and that they get mixed and matched. And of course, you know, these are not strict boundaries. And in fact, the conclusion of the book chooses a few examples of social theory or sociological writing that actually combine different kinds of theoretical moves in their account of some specific phenomena. So what is it? I'm wondering if you could use one of those four theoretical moves and think about what a student actually learns as they work through the chapter, because it's not like the chapter is only a paragraph long where you summarize (laughs) what the move is. Right. So what type of stuff do they learn? Do they learn, you know, by the end of, I don't know which one you want to talk about, but say we were focusing on inequality. Do they learn the different theorists that talk about inequality in a different way, right? Do they compare how uh, Bourdieu might help us understand it versus other people? Or is it rather that they just learn the different mechanisms that are presented and they never actually hear that here was a theorist that came up with that idea? I'm just curious, like what the chapter would actually look like. Yeah, the way that I teach is a little bit in the middle where I say here are the mechanisms, the way inequality plays out or is theorized to work. And then here are specific people that you may have heard of, like Marx or Bourdieu or Weber, who offered a particular view of that. So, for example, inequality is probably a really great place to start where I say, okay, well, One of the big areas of sociology is inequality and how one group maintains its position over another. And if you look at an older generation of theorists, you know, they really worked on very overt methods of exclusion. So in the classroom, I'll say, okay, let's start with Karl Marx, which is ironic because he's one of the most indecipherable writers at times. Like he writes in this very dense style. But I say, if you boil it down, you know, he has a very straightforward account of inequality that it's all about material production right? People lay claim to production and to material goods. 
they gain hold of them and they exclude other people from having them. And that the people who produce the material goods uh, get very little out of the process. So there's this emerging pattern of inequality in his explanation. And so I say that's one version of it. Then another version of inequality might be a Weber version of inequality, where you have different dimensions of inequality, where you say, yeah, there is something called social class, but there's also uh, differences in honor or status and political power. And then I say, okay, well, that's only the beginning of the story. There are modern people who talk about inequality too, like, say, intersectionality theory. And I will teach Patricia Hill Collins and say, okay, well, in her book on black feminist thought, she talks about how these different dimensions of inequality combine together. And then uh, there's a kind of a parallel evolution of thought coming from people like Pierre Bourdieu, who talk about, you know, fields is this very general way of talking about inequality and symbolic and cultural capital. You know, and then you can provide specific examples in the classroom that illustrate these different theories. And then in addition to the chapter, because the book is very short, I'll say, okay, let's read a couple of pages from each one of these writers. So you kind of get the flavor of that. And that's kind of the way it's taught. So you're working through inequality. How many class periods would it take to go through this section of the course? Right. So Indiana, social theory is one of those once a week, super long seminar style courses. So the social inequality section of the course is about four or five lectures long. In a twice a week meeting, that'll be eight to 10 meetings. And then what you would do is I have them read chapter two of the book about different flavors of inequality then you could either assign a couple of pages at a time, like here's the classical inequality, here's intersectionality theory, here's more to you. There was a kind of a section that talks about miscellaneous approaches that don't quite fit. And then each of those gets paired with a different reading. So they do have a little bit of that kind of cultural knowledge. Yeah. And they also do get a little bit of the history of thought of the development of thought, but it's just not getting caught up with that as the only goal. Right, exactly. And You know, when I get into arguments with people on social media or at conferences about how to teach sociology, they'll say, but isn't it good to know where ideas come from? I say, yes, but it's not the primary reason. That's not what you're really there for. You're there to teach sociology, not the history of sociology. And uh, yeah, so you can say, okay, well, and I teach people, I say, I'm not a Marxist. I think Marxist theory is very problematic. But still, it was a very dominant theory for a long time. There's still a lot of sociologists who I respect who write in a Marxist vein. And there are a lot of arguments, you know, which are often pitched in public using the terms of Marxist theory. So, you know, when you turn on the TV, you should know uh, what this is about, you know, know a little bit of the history and the background. And also, I tell people that often on Fox News, they'll wave their finger and say, you're a socialist. And then you can say, actually, I read Marx. I know this guy's not a socialist, right? You'll actually know the answer because you actually read the original. Yeah, and I tell people like, you know, Marxism was a hugely influential philosophy, you know, in the 20th century, something like two thirds of the globe was covered by socialist or Marxist regimes, like in the 1960s. There was this really widespread belief, but theoretic, but that's not important. That's interesting to know. It enriches you kind of a, from a humanistic point of view, but from a sociological point of view, the important thing is that he has this theory of exploitation, this theory of the relationship between producers and workers. And that is a basic template that lots of people use to explain other kinds of inequality, or they're even kind of orthodox Marxists today who still use that basic approach. And I say, you know, go to the Socialist Party website, and you can read their articles, or something like Z Magazine, you, know, you can pick it up, and they use that terminology and that way of thinking, and you won't be surprised by it. You'll appreciate where they're coming from. But still, always the emphasis is what's the underlying argument, not the history of the argument. What is the argument? 
what are its parts and how does it work. And you do also focus to a degree on how X theorist is different than Y theorist, even though they're working in the same area. But again, the emphasis is not caring about that argument as the takeaway, but rather seeing it as different tools to understand the world. Is that, is that correct summation? Right, correct. So for example, Borduzian theories of inequality or intersectional theories of inequality versus classical Marx. Or even amongst classical writers like Du Bois made a very important departure from classical Marxism. He has this theory of race as this kind of symbolic good, the, the racial wage argument. And to say, like, this was actually a big deal when it was written, you know, that this idea that people are not maintaining racial inequality because they're getting a payoff in terms of money. They're getting a payoff in terms of psychological well-being. Like, they feel better because they feel superior to somebody else. And I'm like, you don't find that in Marx. Right? You don't find that in a lot of writers. And it was an important intellectual step that Du Bois made. Yeah, so I use the different writers in the inequality section to talk about different mechanisms of inequality, which I hope that they'll take to their study in a communications class or a sociology of education class. So this might be a bad question. <laughs> it's probably not the best question I'm going to ask, but I'm interested because you brought up how you've gone to various conferences and presented this book or these ideas. And the first time I became aware of this book was, I think it was two years ago now, you presented at the Junior Theorist Symposium. And what I found so fascinating was it wasn't just that some people in the audience said, okay, here's a way for teaching theory. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stick with my way. But there was actually... A, I, I might have been misreading it, but I felt some tension in the crowd. And it actually seemed like your presentation of this way of teaching theory generated animosity. And this probably isn't good data gathering because I'm asking you why they were angry rather than asking those people in the crowd. But do you have a sense of why this generates some sort of visceral response? Yeah. So just so you know, I do have one piece of ethnographic data that you might appreciate which is literally the night after that conference. And I believe that was at the New School in New York. Yeah, exactly. I got an email from a very well-known person who I shall not name, who literally at three in the morning was so incensed by what I said that they wrote me a response, literally at three in the morning. And so remember, this is in the middle of a conference. Like he was probably out partying and drinking with his friends and he still went home at 3 a.m. and still wrote this email. Now it was a nice email. Like I wouldn't say he was contentious at all. He was actually quite scholarly, but he said, you know, I really feel strongly, you know, you may be onto something, but I still think you're really mistaken. And here's the reason, which is that in academic life and in all professional life, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, business owner, or a teacher or a nurse, there's something that you do that gives you pride that says, I'm really good at that, right? I'm really super good at that. And for a lot of social theory teachers and people who write in the genre of social theory, what makes them proud is that they have really sat down and read thousands of pages of old books. And for somebody to say, look, that's interesting as intellectual history, but it's not great for teaching sociology, really undermines the one thing that gives you legitimacy or a sense of pride or belief in yourself. And I'll tell you that from a piece of autoethnographic, from a perspective of autoethnography, that I used to be the guy who would teach Marx, Weber, and Durkheim. And I would walk in into class and I would say, all right, we're going to spend 16 weeks just plowing through all this stuff. And just semester after semester, the pattern was identical. The uh, four or five best students who were always raising their hands, they would get it and they would plow through it. And then everybody else would just basically learn the buzzwords for the exam and then forget them by the end. Right. <laughs> and they're like, so what some people will say, you know, they may, when confronted with that situation, they might say something like, okay, well, maybe I'm not good enough of a teacher if I work harder. Or they might blame the students. They should work harder. 
But what I did was I just thought introspectively, I thought, okay, Indiana University is uh, somewhat competitive. It's not the most competitive school in the world, but it is the flagship of the state. These people are in the major, like they signed up for this. They like this stuff. And yet it is falling, sinking like a rock. It is just not working for them on some level. And it doesn't mean I was giving out Fs, but you could clearly tell that from week to week, nothing was catching. Like nothing was catching. You're just like, they just learn enough to get through the quiz or to write a short paper and then they're done. And you're like, oh my God. So I just thought, okay, they're not dumb. I'm not dumb. They're trying and I'm trying. And then what I realized was, oh my God, the problem is the material. The problem is that these are not history majors. They're not in a great books program. They're not here to do this. They're not really set up for it. And this is completely disconnected from everything else we teach, right? It just is. And then at the same time, I was talking to friends in the discipline of economics, and I discovered that 30 or 40 years ago, econ PhD programs used to teach history of economic thought. Then after a while, they just got rid of that. I'm not sure how much I completely agree with it, but at least the basic idea is just, look, if you're an economist, you should teach economics. Let the historians teach the history of economic thought, or let that be a specialized elective at the graduate level. But when somebody gets a PhD in economics, they should have the principles of economics pounded into their head relentlessly. And this is why economists have this kind of habitus with this kind of confrontational attitude, which is they've spent eight years having supply and demand drilled into their head, and they can see it everywhere. But we don't do that in sociology. We don't say, here are the fundamental principles. We're going to teach this to you at all kinds of levels and drill it into your head. Although we could use that as a critique of who's being produced through economic programs, right? Because there's an inability to see that the idea that is currently in vogue is not the only perspective or way to see the world. Right. And that's why I'm not completely uh, in support of them abolishing history of economic thought. But at least this idea, which is that what history of economic thought should do is it should contextualize the economics you're doing today. It should not place the economics you're doing today or pretend to be the economics you're doing today. And the same thing with sociology. If we had a course called Fundamentals of Sociology, that's different than the intro. What fundamentals, like here are all the arguments, here's the type of reasoning you use, the type of data we use, you know, that's the methods course. And then you go on to your other courses and then have a separate course that talks about history. Then you'd be like, okay, that makes complete sense. And also, if you split theory and history of sociology, that way you start resolving a lot of problematic issues in the curriculum. So, for example, for many years, sociology teachers would teach a section on the Chicago School. And this is always kind of a tricky issue because the Chicago School was not really theoretical in the way that, say, a Du Bois is theoretical or a Weber is theoretical. The Chicago School was just really interested in lots of urban phenomena. Right. Like, why do neighborhoods flip from one ethnic group to another? Right. (laughs) How is space segmented according to ethnicity and social class? And it was extremely innovative when it occurred, when they created that theory in the early 1900s. But there's no like underlying theory that drives everything. So what would happen is that since social theory teachers thought they had to teach the history, they would spend a lot of time trying to explain what the theory of the Chicago school is, even though there is no master theory. But once you make that divorce, you say history is separate, then it becomes easy to teach. You just say, okay, well, here is a very well-known department of sociology that was there at the beginning. Here's why that department was important. Here are the ideas that came out of it. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. Then also, once you split theory from history, or you uh, split great man book reading from theory, then teaching theory becomes way easier. So let, let me give you an example. If you were to teach the great man approach to theory, you teach all of Weber at once. You would say, you know, here's Protestant ethic, here's economy and society. But the thing is, Weber 
has different theoretical goals in different books. And so trying to explain to a student what the Weber perspective is, is actually very hard to do because unlike Marx, he doesn't have a master theory that jumps from book to book. Like Marx is the same Marx in all his books, but there are different Webers that you get from different books. So if you're teaching this kind of old style, old fashioned, you know, social theory course, you have to sit around and explain why all these Webers fit together well, right? <laughs> why the status class and power of Weber fits with the Protestant ethic Weber. Yeah. Like they kind of do, but they don't really, not really. And what do students get from learning that either? Right, exactly. You're like, it's just a confusing conversation. Yeah. But if you actually go to the, what the theory of sociology is, then it becomes very easy. Just say, okay, well, the status class and power Weber is about inequality. Boom. Oh, by the way, and then four weeks from now, when we talk about social values, it'll come up again. And you see how easy that is to teach, right? Then you get the Protestant ethic and you say, well, let's talk about religious values and what that means and what you think values do for people. And you see how easy that is to talk about rather than saying there is a Weber and he had this master theory. It's like, that's not true. He had like different books that did different things. So I've got two questions to wrap up the conversation. The first is about how you develop this approach. So was it difficult in determining these are the four theoretical moves? Did you have a fifth one in mind? Was it very clear these were the four immediately when you started out mapping sociology? Yeah, and so uh, let me tell you, it was a book that was easy and hard to write at the same time. So let me tell you how the book got started, which is I write this blog called Work Theory. It's a group blog that some of us write. It's been around for a very long time now, but about maybe 12 years ago on the blog. But anyway, uh, one of the things I try to do on the blog is I try to provide simple explanations of social research for people. Like, so if you're just stumbling upon the website, could you read an article that was easy? So I thought one day, okay, this week's blog post or today's blog post will be, how would I explain sociology to like my grandmother? Right? If I sat her down and said, this is what this area of study is about. So I wrote a blog post called All of Sociology in Four Easy Steps. Okay. And I use the letters EZ, E dash Z, like a bad car commercial, right? So it's called All of Sociology in Four Easy Steps. And then I just said, okay, well, if you really think about it, what do sociologists study? Well, they study inequality, choice, slash rational choice, strategic action, whatever you want to call it. Then you study values and structure, and then you study social construction. And I, I wrote that blog post. It was maybe about 200 words long. It took me about like 20 minutes to write. Like I just wrote it real fast. And in one day, it got 8,000 hits. Yeah, that's not New York Times level blogging, but certainly is big by any academic standard. Yeah. Like almost no academic blog will get 8,000 hits in a day. No academic article gets, I mean, if you get 100 people to read your article, it's amazing. Right, exactly. And I got like 8,000. It was reblogged and people talked about it like intensely for about one or two news cycles. And then the uh, current editor of Princeton University Press called me and said, we read the blog post. We think it's awesome. Can you write a book about it? And then I said, hell yeah, let's do it. That was awesome. So in the sense of coming up with the four ideas, it was actually pretty straightforward. Then after I wrote the blog post, I started showing drafts of people, especially to people who were sociologists rather than, say, other you know academic friends. But the sociologists say, this is similar to Randall Collins. So I went back and I read Randall Collins' Four Sociological Traditions. And he doesn't come up with quite the same things that I come up with, but it's pretty close. But the big difference is, is that he uses his four traditions to categorize the great thinkers. So he's still in that old man, let's read Marx and Weber mode. And the four traditions are a way of him making sense of that to say, oh, Marx is a conflict theorist. You know, Weber was a consensus theorist. Like he lays out these four different ways of doing it. 
But my book just takes the opposite, which is once you realize there are these four ways of thinking about sociology, then you don't need to think about great men anymore. They just become examples to talk about ongoing discussions in sociology. Yeah, so... You know that... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, that actually segues really well into the final question, which is, I think, a challenging one. But our discipline or at least segments of the discipline, are in the midst of reconsidering how we teach theory. And not from the argument that you're making, but rather reconsidering the sociological canon because it consists mostly of white men from the same region of the world. And there's this question of how do we go through this process of acknowledging the history of the discipline, how narrow it is, uh, the process of colonization, who's included, who's not included. And I'm curious how your approach engages with this line of questioning, because in a sense, it almost sidesteps it completely. It's not specifically saying how do we decolonize, but how do we, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm curious what you would say to that. Yeah. And so uh, on the one hand, I'm very sympathetic to that move because there are a lot of people who uh, there are multiple histories of sociology that have been uh, eliminated or suppressed. So I I think the movement that you're talking about is talking about, you know, looking at people like Ida Wells, Du Bois, Perkins, uh, Anna Julia Cooper and, you know, African-American, non-white and female scholars who were simply cut from the canon. They wrote some really interesting texts, which I read myself, so I'm very partial to that. But still, I think where where I disagree with that movement, I would say, is that what you are doing is replacing one canon with another. I'm saying you do not need a canon. You do not need it. You do not need a team of superheroes that you worship. And really, that's what it is, because remember we talked about how every profession has like something they do that makes them feel really good, right? Like, this is why I'm a doctor. This is why I'm a nurse, right? Like, these are things that really justify myself. And I think for a lot of people, they look at these canonical authors, and those are superheroes or heroes that they look at. And, you know, sometimes I have that moment, like sometimes I'll read, you know, what Anna Julia Cooper wrote, and I'll say, wow, that was a really interesting argument. I wish I'd come up with that, right? So there's no lack of admiration on my part for scholars of the past, whether they be white men or uh, people of color or other groups that were excluded. But still, you're correct that this movement is sidestepping the problem of actually being a teacher. That yes, of course, there will be a few students who really scratch their chins and say, wow, that's a really good point. Like, why do we canonize these white men from Western Europe? Why do we not canonize others? But my point is, you don't need a canon. You know, we're not here to worship heroes of the past. We could have a history course that'll say, this is the sociology that was excluded. And there are lots of sociologies that have been excluded, not just that written by people of color. But if you look through the history books, there's a lot of great sociology that we've dropped. Pretty much everything from the 60s and 70s really gets has completely disappeared from theory. Oh, my God. Yeah, like 60s and 70s, that generation of scholars of color that you're talking about, like Cooper and Du Bois. I'm also a fan of the old utilitarians. I'm one of those people who thinks that Herbert Spencer has been really misrepresented. And William Graham Sumner, who was ASA president and a very prominent intellectual of his time. Rational choice is now being written out of the canon. So how do you handle that in your book then? So you're saying there's these theorists that you find somewhat inspiring and you think their ideas have been improperly repeated over the years to the point that they have almost become something completely marginalized. Does that mean you just make sure to include that in your chapters or what do you do with that? Well, in the writing of the book, what I did was I was very clear in including a wide range of examples to illustrate the different people. 
And that's the different principles of sociology. So that is why I don't do it the way that Randall Collins did, where he said, I'm just going to use Marx as my main example or Darendorf as my example of conflict theory. And so when I talk about inequality, I try to include a wide range. So I will talk about Marx, but I also talk about Du Bois. I talk about E. Franklin Frazier, who was a very prominent African-American sociologist. I talk about Patricia Hill Collins. I even talk about modern people who are, believe it or not, not dead. <laughs> You know, uh, Tarikas's article on intersectionality and social movements, I talk about that for a sentence or two. So the idea is, like, I actually actively include a wide range of people. I don't think I have a section on, say, like, Spencer or William Graham Sumner or these kind of, like, laissez-faire liberals of the past. Maybe I should have put them in because they had interesting arguments, too, especially given, the, you know, the current day, a lot of them were, like, anti-imperialists. It was kind of a really interesting thing to think about. But still, you know, like, ideas of evolution could be fit in. So there's two issues, which is, how do you teach the book and how should the book be written? So maybe in the future, you know, I could add a few more people here and there, but I probably leave the book intact. Also, the thing is, I don't want the book to become an encyclopedia. Yeah. When you pick up the book, you immediately think, I could read this. You know, it's like 150 pages. The type is big. The language is very accessible and clear. Like most students who actually sit down and try to read it will successfully read it. But if you try to include every single theorist who you think has been unjustly dropped, then guess what? It's going to get a long book that's going to put people to sleep. Yeah. But the nice thing is that if you believe the argument of the book, which is that you're not here to teach people, you're here to teach ideas, then those are the ideas of your class. Then you can plug anybody in you want. So if you think Anna Julia Cooper has been misrepresented or underplayed in sociology, go for it. And just say, like, these are theories of race, theories of inequality, and this is what she said about it. And then the question of, you know, if, if we're reading Durkheim, the original text, we see paragraphs where it's very clear that he uses racist terminology, has these sexist ideas, or draws on colonial thought. Your approach is, well, we can take the core argument of Durkheim that still works and not get caught up in that other debate because that should take place in grad school or the history of sociological thought. Exactly. Like, I always use the example of medical schools, right? Say you were having a heart attack and you went into a hospital. You said, oh, my God, I have chest pains. And you see a pill on the shelf and you say, doctor, I need that pill. He says, like, yeah, I could give you that pill. But did you know that the guy who invented that pill was a eugenicist? Mm -hmm. You'd be like, be quiet, just give me the pill, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you think that Durkheim was actually wrong about empirics, like if you really think his theory of solidarity is completely without merit, then you shouldn't teach it. But if you think it had merit, but you also think he says some racist things here and there, it's very easy just to say, okay, here's the idea. By the way, he also has some wrong ideas that were sadly common then, you know, and I don't think you even need to make that big of a deal of it. I think that's a really good place to end the conversation. I feel like we covered the book pretty well and the arguments around it. So I enjoyed it. I'm going to try. It's too late to adopt the book this semester, but I'm going to try to lay out some of the arguments to start the semester and try to weave it in as best as I can. So I'm curious how it will go. Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing that when people adopt this book for this course, and when I adopted it for my own course, the first emotion I felt was relief. Because when you're teaching social theory the old-fashioned way, you're like, oh my God, I have to read through this 400 pages of Weber and I have to decipher weird terms from 1840 for Marx or something, right? But then you're just like, oh, I'll just teach what I think sociology is and I'll just use these as examples. Yeah. And then you just feel way more relaxed. Yeah, well, I could say the biggest challenge for me every semester with my syllabus is so many people are being left out, right? That's always a challenge. I have this tension that could be self-imposed, imagining some sort of outside sociological 
figure just telling me I have to do this, but I feel like I have to include the canon that always gets taught, but then I also want to expand the voices. And there's theorists that I just think are exciting and students should be exposed to, and there's not time in a semester. So I suppose your book, in a sense, gives you relief from that perspective as well and saying, all right, well, you laid out the mechanisms, who you choose to add on top of that to illustrate them, that's where you have freedom. Yeah, exactly. And that's tons of freedom. It could all be classical. Like if you really want to do the old school thing, you can, but it could also be modern. And also you could rotate from year to year, yeah. right? So what I do for the graduate students is I also use the book for the grad students, but they actually do a lot more original text reading. But then I have a module at the end, like three or four weeks where I'm like, okay, this is all new stuff. It's all new stuff. And now that you've read the basics of theory, you can then say how this new stuff fits into it. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an interesting example from teaching graduate uh, social theory. Uh, when I first read Omar Lozardo's American Sociological Review article on public culture and declarative culture, I was confused <laughs> because it's all this social psychology and all this cultural theory. And I'm like, dude, what are you trying to get at here? Like, seriously. And when the article came out, I know some people have had that opinion. And by the way, I don't I don't say to uh, say that to rip on uh, Omar. You know, we're actually friends. But still, you know, when you pick up a piece of cultural sociology, you're like, what are they doing? Yeah. What are they getting at? But then when I put it at the end of my course in that section on new stuff, then what happened was, oh, my God, we just reviewed all these arguments about social construction and values and cultural theory. And then Omar's article makes complete sense. Yeah. And when students get there, like, oh, my God, because we didn't waste the entire semester reading stuff that's not really relevant to today's sociology. We picked what was helpful and then it builds up to modern articles. This could take us in a whole other hour-long conversation. Right. But that's one of the things that amazingly is completely absent from social theory, which is anything being published in the last years that is social theory, which is kind of astounding when you tell people outside of academia about your course. You know, I'm teaching social theory, but the students probably won't see anything from the, from the last 30 years, right? And they definitely won't see a new journal article that is published in the top-ranked social theory journal which is, yes. I, I, I think is, is always astounding. And I try to include more of that, but I'm like, I don't know if the students are prepared to read it, but that's probably a failure of the course. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And it's really shocking when you, especially the old Marx Weber Durkheim course, when you realize like you're not learning anything past 1920. Yeah. Not even speaking of like recent articles, we're talking like a lot of these courses will just stop at 1920. Yeah, Goffman's considered too contemporary, right? And how long is right. Goffman's dead for 50 years and yeah, he's too, too contemporary for it? Yeah, and then this also solves the problem of should it be you know classical and contemporary theory? The answer is none of the above. Just teach theory. <laughs> if you want to do more of it, just have a second semester. It's easy to do. That, that's a good place to end on. I, I appreciate this conversation. It's been fun. I'll see what the reactions are. If I get any sort of hate email, I'm just going to forward it to you and let you handle it. Fair enough. You have a good one, Kyle. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.